everybody. Can you all hear me? Whoa, yes, I think the answer is yes. Um, <laughs> thanks for uh, coming out today. I'm really excited to see all of you, and I know there's a lot of other places you could be, so I'm glad you're here. Um, my name is Eric. I'm the VP of Design at um, Adobe right now, and I'm going to talk a little bit about my career, um, how I got to where I, I am now, like some weird turns I've taken along the way, um, hopefully giving some um, advice and just things that I've learned um, going through my career being a designer. Um, I've been an illustrator, a photographer, I've taught, I've done animation and programming. I've had kind of a weird path to where I am today. And so for those of you early in your career, hopefully there's some um, inspiration here because you don't always, um, you don't always end up where you start. And where I started, and this is a quote um, actually from my sister, without the internet you'd be a chemist. And so I, I, I started out as a chemistry major in undergrad, you know, where most design students start out. And um, this was, I think, um, there's actually a photo I wish you could see better of me brushing my sister's teeth. I'm not sure why I'm doing that. We're very small children. I guess we were very close at the time. Um, and, you know, I started out as a chemistry major. This is a, not the actual chemistry lab. This is a stock photo. But um, I was really trying to decide between um, chemistry and art and, and, and music, and I didn't choose to do any of those. Um, the funny thing is, music was at the top of the list, but I didn't want to be a music major because I had this terrible fear of being a conductor and being in front of groups of people, which obviously I've gotten over since then, but it was just an irony that I was like, oh, I never want to do that, and here, here we are today. Um, but I didn't even know what design was when I went to school. I came from a, a very small town in the middle of nowhere in Illinois, and the idea that people got paid money to create the things in the world we live in like was not a concept for me. And it kind of blew my mind when I found out that you could get a job doing this. And my inroad, and if some of you remember this for Dummies series, this was like the first um, design book. I don't think I can call it that. But like it's the first book that led me into design. Um, you know, I wanted to build a website for a band I was in, and music will sort of be a big through line throughout my career, but I wanted to build a website for a band I was in. Um, someone told me I could actually get a job doing this, and I was hooked at that point. Um, I transferred to art. I became a, a fine art major at the time, um, but my dad said I had to get a degree that could get me a job, and so um, I, I majored in graphic design, and I ended up minoring in business for a very uh, short period of time. Um, I dropped the business minor basically as soon as my parents stopped paying attention. Um, and I really wish I had kept it because I think it would have been helpful, but I had at least a little bit of a seed of um, business and entrepreneurship like in my brain that I think would sort of um, sprout later to take that metaphor to its illogical conclusion. So um, I wanted to be an illustration major. That's what I really wanted to do. And the school I went to was very small and didn't offer that. So I ended up taking um, printmaking and graphic design classes, and there were no web design classes until after I actually graduated from college. And so I didn't learn anything about what I would eventually sort of um, become until after that. And um, But I, I really loved it. And 
like everyone else, I needed to get my first job, and so I opened the phone book. That's how people get jobs, right? Like they, they opened the phone book, um, and I, I remember going through and looking at every place that had the word design in it and calling a bunch of really confused interior designers and architects who had like no idea like why I was calling them, but I found one firm that had the word illustration in the title. I was like, oh, they probably do the kind of design that I do. Um, and the company I went to work for, and this is an actual photo from Google Maps, was in this tiny, ta tiny town named Gridley. Um, Gridley was a big deal because it had, a, um, it had a McDonald's and a Subway, so that was huge. Yeah, it was like a budding metropolis. And the design firm that I worked in um, used to be a dentist's office. And so this is not an actual photo, but this is. And so it doesn't look like if you go back and forth, it's, you know, you can sort of see it still. Um, in the cubicle I was in, I used to think a lot about like someone was getting a root canal here not that, not that long ago. Um, but like the first lesson, it, like the thing I really learned was like not to judge a book by its cover. And I remember sitting outside this office looking at it and I had all of my like 19 year old designer dreams in my head and I was like, this is not, this does not look like what I thought it was going to look like. And I almost like turned around and didn't go to the interview. But when I ended up going, I realized that they were doing work for, um, for, for Disney, for Nike, for a bunch of huge companies because they were a very specialist illustration firm. And one of their specialties was using very early versions of Adobe Illustrator to create like super photo real, like vector illustrations. And so I'd only done, you know, pen and paper and like ink drawings. I had never, I had never used Illustrator before. This is my first introduction to Adobe tools. Um, and it was kind of like this serendipitous moment. I remember my first week, and this has really carried through with me to my time at Adobe, being sat in front of a, a Mac with Illustrator and a Wacom tablet and being said, learn how to use this program. And I remember for the first three days, I'm like, I'm not gonna make it. I was like, this is too hard. Like, I don't know how this works. I, I hate it. I almost quit. And then by the end of the week, I was really in love and it's still, like the program that I use the most and, and really love, but like that initial barrier to like getting into this program is something that I think about a lot still in my time at Adobe. Um, I spent a, a summer drawing John Deere tractors and vacuum cleaners. Again, maybe not what I expected, um, but I had a friend who lived in in Colorado at a place called um, Anderson Ranch Art Center. And for those of you who don't know, there are artist communes to this day all over the United States. And they have um, opportunities for young artists and designers to go and basically um, get these amazing mentorships and, and be um, TAs. And so when my friend told me about this place, he described it as, um, it in no way resembles real life and you're gonna love it. And it was absolutely true. Um, it was beautiful, it's right outside of Aspen, Colorado. And the problem was when I interviewed, I didn't ask a lot of questions. I spent my almost entire interview talking to my um, future boss about um, guitar playing. <laughs> That's a problem. Um, because when I got there, I realized that um, I didn't have the job I thought I had and I just 
moved across the country to a place I'd never been for a job that was not the job I thought. Um, and I very quickly learned um, how to bust outside of my comfort zone. This was the first time I'd ever taken a big risk in my life. And the problem with my job was, if you look at this building, there's a word photo on the outside of it. Um, and maybe you'll notice I have not talked about photography up to this point because I was not a photographer. I didn't know anything about Photoshop. I didn't know anything about dark rooms. And I found myself in charge of a computer lab teaching Photoshop classes and running a dark room. Um, and I remember when I was introduced to the, uh, the president of um, Anderson Ranch at the time, I was introduced as the new like photo lab manager. And I was like, oh no. And I, I just realized I had made a mistake. Um, but the good thing was, the first teacher of the first class was this woman named Julianne Cost. And she is an evangelist at Adobe. She still works there. This was 20 years ago. And um, she taught me, she spent days with me before the first class and taught me everything, like the foundation of everything I know about Photoshop at the time. I mean, this was like, my career could have gone in a very bad direction if she wasn't like the most kind and generous person in the world. And she had no reason to do this. Um, and so I was basically learning Photoshop about one day before the students and like teaching them very quickly afterwards. Um, but it was a blast and I got to work with a bunch of amazing artists. Um, the problem with working on an artist commune is you make, I was making $300 a month, and this was in the early 2000s. Um, I had enough money, they paid for room and board, luckily, but I had enough money for uh, a cell phone, um, very basic insurance, which my, you know, my, I needed, and one nice meal a month. And so once a month, we would go into town and get like a sushi dinner as a group. Um, so I started building websites for artists um, back in the flash days when you could build really weird stuff and like get paid for it. It was a blast. Um, I'm sorry for all of you who missed that time on the internet. It was fun. Um, but flash websites were sort of notoriously hard to update and I was lazy. And so as a designer, I started building this tool that I called at the time Creative Control. Um, to allow me to like basically give something to the artist and be like, update your own website, I don't want to deal with that. I like the design part, I don't want to update your business. Um, this was in 2000, this was pre-Squarespace, pre-Behance, pre a lot of these things. And unfortunately, I didn't think of it as a company, I just thought this will get me to not have to do the stuff I don't like about my job. And I wish I had maybe taken one more business class. Um, who knows, my career could have been very different. Um, and I also ended up working for um, a celebrity photographer named Lynn Goldsmith at the time. And um, if Lynn's name is familiar, she's actually, um, I don't know if it's been finished yet, but she's in front of the Supreme Court right now, uh, arguing artist rights against the estate of Andy Warhol. And so Andy Warhol used a photo of hers without her permission, made a ton of money off of it as you know he did, and um, she wasn't compensated, she was never given credit. And so there's real potential that this case could have like a massive impact for um, creative people all over the world and has ties into like a lot of the generative AI work, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, but everything is connected in a weird way. And so, you know, in breaking out of my comfort zone again, I moved to New York. Um, 
Lynn was also a, a New York based photographer. So it was a very like easy transition. And I think I had a bunch of um, jobs at the beginning that were again, like not exactly what I expected. So I worked at um, I ITP, which is a photo center in New York for one day. Um, I quit at the end of my first day. Um, I, I worked in advertising for a while and some of my um, advertising friends are here, but it just wasn't the right fit for me. Uh, I, I got a job working for Olympus Camera, which I was very excited about, but the project was um, an anthropomorphic endoscope. And I was like animating it. It was just like some of the weirdest work you'll ever get to do. Um, and then eventually I ended up at Warner Music Group through, let's call it like sheer luck, very likely. Um, and this was my dream job. I was working in the web group, so I was doing web design. I was working for a record label. It was like everything I loved were all coming together into the same place. That's what I thought. Um, this, it's a little hard to see, is the office we were in. So a couple things were going on that I wasn't aware of when I accepted the job. Um, the first thing was, uh, we were the first cohort of people to be hired after like massive layoffs because of file sharing. And so I think on Friday, a lot of people were fired and a bunch of us started on Monday. We didn't know that a bunch of people were fired on Friday. And so, as you can imagine, not the most hospitable environment in the world. We were placed in the second floor, which I think is receivership. Like there's, if you'll look, I had two printers on my desk. There was nowhere else for them to go. Um, and there's, it's really hard to see, but there's a tarp there. And why is there a tarp? There's a tarp because the ceiling was leaking and every day I would wake up and my computer would be covered in water. And I would have to clean off my computer every morning before I started working. So this was like not, my dream music job. Um, and you know what I ended up doing there was, um, I, I sort of decided I was either gonna be miserable or I was gonna try to do something on my own. So I thought like, what am I interested in? I, I loved music, I loved building things. You know, at the time I was building a lot of stuff in Flash and so I decided to build something myself and I built um, what I believe to be like the first ever music application, and it was for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. This is actually the phone it ran on, so you can, like years and years before the iPhone, it could play music, it could play videos, like things that we take for granted now. I remember showing this to people, and like their brains like melting, like this was <laughs> completely new. Um, people really couldn't believe that like this was even possible. And the funny thing was that it ran on so few phones that, um, I had my own calendar and the things I would have to do all day at work. And I had a second calendar. And the second calendar was for the phone. And so the phone would get meeting requests. Like the phone needs to be on the 18th floor to meet with the CEO and Madonna or something. Or the phone needs to be here for this. And so I would check the phone's calendar to make sure he wasn't busy that day. I would <laughs> take the phone, I would go to a meeting which I was never allowed into, I would hand the phone off to someone, they would go into the meeting, meet with someone very exciting, um, show them the phone, um, it would come back out, I would take the phone, I would go, and I would lock it up somewhere. It was one of the weirdest experiences, but it was, I was doing work that I was excited about and felt really proud of. And that led to sort of like this, you know, sort of third phase for me. 
and my boss there at the time moved from Warner Music Group to Atlantic Records. And um, he told me, he's like, oh, I'm hiring a junior freelance designer. And this was seven or eight years into my career. And he's like, do you know anybody? I was like, well, I'm not junior and I don't want to be freelance, but like, I would love to do this job. And he and I put together a plan on me coming over as a creative director and building out a team and basically how if we built a team similar to what we had at Warner Music Group, we could save Atlantic a lot of money and we could make better stuff. And for some reason they said yes. I, not, I still don't know why. Um, and I ended up working at Atlantic Records for uh, seven years. And like the lesson that I really took from this and something I still talk to people about a lot is like, you have to ask for what you want. And so I was presented with the way the world was. I said, what if it was like this? And they said, yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> and it, it led to something pretty amazing and one of like the most fun times in my career. And I, I talk to designers on my team about this all the time when they're feeling like they're in, in a bad spot or they don't know where they're going. And I'm like, well, have you told anyone what you want? And you know, when someone's looking for a new job, the first thing I ask them is like, ignore reality, like describe what your dream job is. And that doesn't mean that they're gonna get that job or that job even exists, but like getting people to talk openly about what they actually want is like a really important part of, of, of any process. And I learned this luckily like very, very early on. I got to build out a team. I'm like, many of us have probably experienced this. I'm so sad that like there are years of my life that are encapsulated in like old shitty iPhone photos. Like, there's no better version of this photo, and it's a bunch of people that, like, I see every couple of years now. It makes me very sad. Um, but I, I, I kept just saying what I wanted. So anytime someone left the company, I was like, well, I could do their job, too. And someone else would leave. I'm like, I bet I could do that. And I basically built the role up into a VP of product role at Atlantic before I left. And um, I think it was a combination of relationships like being young enough to not know that I shouldn't be volunteering for these things, um, having some amount of like trust from people and also pitching in a way that I'm like, what's the worst that could happen if I mess this up, you can just hire somebody else to do it. Um, I ended up getting to work with a ton of amazing artists. This is, um, I'm in the back like not paying attention to Phil Collins. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what I was like, look at who was over there, but I'm just like, or maybe I'm just contemplating something like very important that he just said. Um, one of the nicest people I've ever met in my entire life, if you're curious. Um, so this was kind of amazing. Um, while not the actual Rolls Royce, I did present designs on the hood of Diddy's Rolls Royce in Manhattan traffic one time. Um, so he was in the recording studio and we were working on his most recent website. And we were told he's leaving the recording studio, he's getting in a car that goes to a helicopter, that goes to the airport, that goes to Ibiza, and we're not gonna see him again for like two months. And so you have to get these designed approved before he gets on an airplane or you're fired. I don't think they said or you're fired, but like I, you can tell you know that look. <laughs> and so I was like, okay. And so um, we went to the recording studio, we waited for him for hours while he was recording, which was being in the studio while he was doing that was just, was kind of a wild experience in and of itself. And then as soon as he's done, he just runs out the back door and we're like, oh shit. 
And so we start running down the stairs after him, and I'm like pulling my laptop out of my, out of my backpack, and I start powering it on, and you'll notice my laptop is plugged in. That's because my laptop was dead. Um, luckily, this was at a time, and I, I think this is back from being in an advertising agency, I had print backups of everything. So I'm like, oh my God, I have like 10 huge 13 by 19 sheets of paper. I'm gonna have to like show this guy. And so um, he runs, he's going towards the car, we're chasing him. Luckily, a bunch of kids recognize him and like slow him down. I think he starts signing autographs. And I go over to the hood of the car and I spread designs on the hood of like, I don't know, I don't know how much a Rolls Royce costs, but like more money than, than I had <laughs> or have or ever will have. And um, I was like, you have to pick one of these before you leave. And he just looks at him for about three seconds and goes, that one, and gets in the car and leaves. And so that was like hours of time to hear that one and to go on from there. Um, this is an apartment in Manhattan. Um, so I got a call that myself and the, I was the VP of product and the VP of marketing were going to meet with um, the president of Warner Music, or I think he was the president at the time, to talk about, um, talk about Facebook. And this was in the early days of Facebook and when they were getting into music and we we're like, oh great, we get to pitch our ideas on like what we think music should be and maybe we'll get to meet with Facebook and all this stuff and we end up getting an address to go to. We're like, well, that's very weird. This isn't like at an office. Where is this? And so it's in, I think the old, Peninsula Hotel in New York was converted into like these incredible apartments and we get there, somebody opens the door and it's Tory Burch. Um, and I was like, why am I, why, why am I at Tory Burch's house? And so um, at the time, the, the head of Warner Music Group and Tory Burch were dating and we found out that we were there to actually teach Tory Burch how to use Facebook. And so we ended up, we ended up in her, in her studio, which was like a four by four area with the head of Warner Music Group, Tori Birch, and two VPs from Atlantic Records, like teaching her what Facebook was. And so this was about seven years of my life for these kinds of things. She was also like one of the nicest people I've ever met. Um, and we had to make a bunch of really great, you know, websites and things for artists, but a lot of this stuff was disposable and and the problem with this was and something i learned was a lot of artists wanted to start over every time they needed something new they wanted to build a website like have it out for an album um we would try to iterate and learn and they just wanted to tear it down and start over and so the idea of like building things over time or learning or making things better for customers like completely went out the window and i'm like well if i actually want to build products i'm going to have to build a product and so we ended up building um, this product in the mid-2000s, and it was called um, Fanbase. And this was like a really pivotal moment in my career where I sort of um, started building real products. And so this was a multi-service music application. This is before Spotify, before any of these other things. It was on phones and on desktop. Um, it was kind of this amazing thing, and it was like my first real taste of building a, a product. And you know, what I really learned from this was do-it-yourself. When I looked at music apps out there, they were all just about playing music. There was no information about the artist, nothing about tour dates, nothing about what they were doing. There were no photos, there were no videos. It was just music, and as someone who loved music their whole lives, 
knowing that not everyone wanted that, some people just wanted the music, I made a bet, and Atlantic went along with it, that more people wanted to know more than just the music, and we built a product around this. And so we had a desktop application that played music, but you could chat with other people that were listening to music. Um, like super early days, I, I, I'm gonna guess this is 2009, maybe? Um, across mobile phones, I think that's like the second iPhone. Um, I got to build the music player for the first connected car. This was at um, CES back then, and this is it running in the back of a headrest. I think this was the first time a car had ever connected to the internet to play music, and I designed and built the application for that. It was like this sort of amazing time in my career, and we started winning some awards and getting noticed. I'm like very tiny in one of those photos up there. Um, but I realized something like pretty important that I, was, I wasn't building the product, I was building a product to sell the product, right? The product was music, and I loved music, and that should be the product. But everything I was doing was one degree of separation from what we were selling, and I just realized that um, like, the thing I was doing was never going to be the most important thing, and that's not what I wanted to spend my whole career doing. And so my friend was putting on this conference in Savannah, Georgia called um, Geek End. And I think it only had like one or two years. And I ended up going because David Carson was gonna be there. Um, he didn't show up. And so um, these are all the people signing the poster. You'll notice quite a few of us like, didn't like the fact that he didn't show up. And so his name got crossed out on all the posters. Um, but the important thing is, um, my name is right next to Matthias Correa, who's one of the founders of, of Behance. And we ended up sharing a cab from the um, airport to the hotel. And it actually wasn't a cab, it was somebody's car. And when they came to pick us up, I remember them opening the trunk of the car, and there was a bunch of dirt, some ropes, and two shovels <laughs> in the trunk of the car. And I'm like, oh, we're either going to be best friends or we're going to die. Maybe both. It could be very short and then, you know. Um, and it was just, I don't, I don't know why they decided it was okay to pick up speakers for an event in a car with dirt in the trunk, but everything was fine. We ended up becoming um, very good friends and we took advantage of Savannah's um, liberal outdoor drinking policies, which if you don't know, you can drink outside in Savannah, Georgia. If you want to make a friend fast, go to Savannah. Um, but I, I learned a lot about like building real connections. This wasn't this wasn't networking. This wasn't me like trying to meet someone. It was you know this real connection. We ended up hanging out for years afterwards, and we'd go out for lunch or dinner or brunch, and we would like drink a little bit and then talk about like oh what if we work together some way that would that'd be amazing. Um, and then I remember one brunch he showed up and he was like very serious. I was like, well, that's not normal. And then he wasn't drinking. I was like, oh my God, what's going on? And then he's like, no, seriously, um, we just raised a round of funding. Do you want to come work at Behance? And this was right at the moment where I was feeling like my time in Atlantic was up, like I wasn't happy with what I was doing. And so I, I took another leap. He convinced me to come to Behance because I was um, invited to redesigned the 99U website. And those of you who didn't know about the 99U, it was a conference that the Behance team put on in Lincoln Center in New York. It was three days a year. It was like 
Ted for creativity. It was the best three days out of the year, period. Like I've never still been to a conference that's anything like this. And I got to, you know, redesign, um, you know, the, the, the website from scratch. It was, I was the only designer and there was one engineer. So like a two person team uh, building this website. And we got to bring these amazing conference talks to the web, like for the very first time. And, you know, this led to me, you know, working at Behance and getting to launch their first iOS app. Um, and I remember I was like the mobile guy at Behance for a while. And the, what that meant was I would show up in a meeting and I would say, um, does this work on a phone? And everyone would say no. And then we would talk about it for about 20 minutes. And then I would go to the next meeting and I'd be like, does this work on a phone? And eventually somebody else would ask that question. I'd be like, great, I never need to go to this meeting again. Um, we built iPad apps and started building these really great relationships with Apple. Um, we got featured on the homepage of iTunes, and this is actually in, in China. We were one of the first creative networks to launch in China. I think we were n number one when it launched, and I've actually been to China since then and talked to people, and like, it was this amazing moment where they're like, you know, because of the firewall, we don't see a lot of what the creative world is doing around us. And like, this is the only window we have into the creativity in the rest of the world. And it was like this moment where, like, I think we had no idea what we were doing and it ended up being this sort of like amazing connection for people. Um, and then we got acquired by Adobe and that's how I ended up at Adobe. And I think most of the rest of this is gonna be sort of my Adobe period. But um, this was kind of an amazing time. This is all of us like sitting around, looking at our phones, looking at the computer, like frantically refreshing, waiting for the like acquisition news to be on the Adobe website. Um, and then, you know, the sort of like sixth moment in my career really came and I got to continue my mobile aspirations. I was having a meeting at Behance post acquisition with Scott Belsky, who's the founder of Behance and then David Wawani, who was running Creative Cloud. And they were, we were basically reviewing our mobile strategy and he asked me a question. He's like, well, Behance is doing pretty well at mo mobile. Adobe's not doing very much. Like, what do you think we should do? And I think, we both like spouted off something that I don't even remember what it was. And he said, well, who do you think should run this team? And I remember like after this meeting, following Scott into his office, closing the door behind us and going like, we should do it. We should do this. Like I've been waiting for this. Like I've got this mobile background. I love creativity. Like, let me do it. And they said, yes, again, like I, I, I raised my hand. I said like, please let me do this. Um, I said, I also did it quickly. I did it before anyone else could because I knew there were other design leaders at the time who I think probably would have really liked to have this job. And I sort of took a leap and we built a bunch of mobile applications I'm really still proud of. This was, um, some of these don't exist anymore, have taken on very different forms, but this is uh, Adobe Sketch, which was a, a raster painting and drawing application, which now turned into Adobe Fresco, which is, yeah, I heard some people. It's Adobe Fresco is free. It's the best drawing app. You should all get it. Um, <laughs> and then we had a, a separate um, drawing application for vectors, and we ended up combining them both into Fresco, and we were the first drawing app to do like real vectors and rasters. Together, it does a lot of other amazing things. We also got to build an app called Capture, which is like very sadly Adobe's best kept secret. It is a mobile application. It's free. 
I can point it at a font and it'll tell me what font it is and let me select that font. I can point it at um, anything, it'll tell me what color it is. I can uh, take a photo of something and make a pattern or a, a material for like a 3D model. I can make brushes out of things. It's, and it all syncs to your library, so it just like shows up in your tools. It's awesome and nobody knows about it, so please go get it. Um, I got to be in an Apple keynote, which was like the weirdest experience of my entire life. Um, you'll see like a little, um, I got to present to Tim Cook a couple times. There's a logo in the lower right-hand corner. That's Adobe Sketch. And because of all this, I ended up moving to San Francisco. And I love this photo because you see the angle of the street and then like the angle of, uh, of the truck. And we were also moving a piano. And so I had like this Looney Tunes moment in my head of like, a piano rolling down a hill and like chasing after it, which, which luckily uh, didn't didn't happen. But it was kind of um, this amazing journey, and I ended up meeting my partner. We got a dog, we got a house. Like I'm settled, and <laughs> I have to sneak him into every presentation. So, um, and like things were going pretty well, and then um, something even more amazing happened. And it's like the first colorful slide. Um, I was asked to take over design for all of Creative Cloud at Adobe. And I went from about 12 reports to, I think, 65 overnight. Um, it, was, it was hard. Like, I think people talk a lot in the design community about going from being an individual contributor to a manager, which is very difficult. But going from a manager of individuals to an, a manager of managers, I think is like equally difficult and people don't talk about it very much. Because, you know, I think most of us and those of you who are managers, you get to that point because you were good at something. You were good at being a designer, you're good at being an engineer, you're good at whatever you were good at. And like the further abstracted you get from that, you have to really rethink like what is your value and what do you do? When people ask me what I do for a living, I still say I'm a designer. And then my partner usually looks at me, I'm like, I mean, I guess I run a big design team at a company you've probably heard of, but like the first instinct out of my mouth is like, I'm a designer, that's still how I identify, and you start getting really far away from that. Um, but and when I took over the team, um, some great stuff was being done, but it was, they were not really, Adobe was not really thinking multi-platform at the time. We had different experiences on you know, Mac and on Windows. We had a, a, an iPad app, which was great, but which was very different than what we were doing on the desktop. On web, you could only view things. Um, we had these consistency challenges. We, a bunch of different design teams, there was not a centralized design team at the time. Um, we were making new products, but as you look at these new products, they all had like very different ways of interacting, very different design centers. And you know, it's, it was really about learning to get back to the basics and thinking about like, how do you break the design down into its component pieces and then build it back up to something that is more sort of rational than what we had before. Um, and this is a quote I really love. If you wish to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. And that's, that's like, that's grandiose. I don't, I, we were not, um, we're not inventing the universe, but maybe we're making apple pie, at least for some people. Um, but we really started like going back to the core of like, what were the values of these products? Like, what did it mean to have a Creative Cloud logo like next to your product? And so we started thinking about these worlds of 
web and mobile and desktop working together, like everything being stored in the cloud, uh, multimodal, so working differently on different kinds of devices. Um, we really were thinking about consistent UI and UX. Um, I have radical respect up here because that's less about the product but more about just how we treated each other. I think that's an important part of all of this. And um, we started integrating machine learning and machine intelligence into the products like very early on. Um, we built out these product configurability principles, and this is actually based on work that Intuit has done, but this is a framework we talk about almost every day at Adobe. It's really fixed, flexible, and free. And when you're thinking about systems and systems design, it's really important to think about like what's fixed, what are the things that like everybody has to do exactly the same way, what's flexible, it's like, okay, there's probably a right way to do it, but we're open to having the conversation. And what is free? What are the things just like go crazy? This is your sandbox. You don't even have to check in with us. And really like trying to think through the product. And, and with these sort of principles in mind, we started breaking down our applications into um, our, our, its component parts, like what makes an application Adobe. And it's funny, like when we started showing these new prototypes to people, as long as the tools were on the left and the panels were on the right, people were like, that looks like an Adobe product. Almost everything else we could like mess around with, which was like a really interesting thing. But that was like the moment where people are like, oh yeah, this isn't like brand X creative tool, this is an Adobe tool. Um, and we got really old school, we printed this stuff out, we were like marking up on a board, we all flew together and started really breaking down um, these products in new ways. And then we started building them back up from, you know, this is sort of the principles of atomic design, building from atoms to molecules to bigger and bigger products, all the way up to these like larger organisms, which are applications. So starting with the smallest pieces and, and really building out. Um, we also had a design system called Spectrum, which really took care of the atoms. We have like tons of um, bits and bobs in our applications. We've got hundreds of thousands of icons, like the, the depth of Adobe's design language, I think we believe we're about third or fourth biggest design system in the world. I think Apple, Google, Microsoft, maybe IBM and then us. Um, it's, just, it's just massive in scale. Um, but we realize with a design system that big, you can actually use those pieces in very different ways. And we needed to build out these bigger module, modules, these super components. So we built a new team of uh, basically US architects, which we call the unified experience team. And this team is 100% focused on like, how do these pieces come together in sort of like thoughtful and rational ways. And so they started taking these spectrum components and started rebuilding like these bigger, bigger elements out of it. From these medium-sized elements, we started building entire screens. Um, and then taking these screens and really building out like full application flows. So like really applying the best we could the principles of atomic design to these new, these new products and um, very different than the stuff you sort of saw at the beginning. Um, you know, a, a, a new version of Adobe Lightroom, um, a new video, at, at video editing app, Premiere Rush, um, and even Acrobat, like one of the um, flagships of Adobe that's been around a long time, like taking these principles and applying it to new surfaces. And I think maybe this is the first time, at least I would ever call Acrobat beautiful. Like I'm really proud of the work that we've done on this product. 
and then we built some new products. We built um, you know, Photoshop and Illustrator on the iPad and on the web, like extending these principles out. It wasn't just about the existing things, it was about how do we build um, all of these products. And you know, it continued from there into our learning content. Like, I like love this screen more than anything. I just think like there's they're really beautiful. They're very consistent. There's a style. Every application sort of has their own like style and brand around learning content. Um, and I think from there, once you've got that foundation, you can really start to think about the future. And um, the thing I sort of learned from this is like you have to start at the basics. And you know, whenever I talk to teams about building products, especially inside of existing portfolios, one of the things I always say is don't make it worse. That's like a first principle. It's like, don't make it worse. And so like fix, fix the broken stuff, make sure that like moving forward, you're doing better than what you did in the past before you go fix everything else. Like, like stop, stop the assembly line where it is and fix it moving forward. And um, so we then start to get to focus on like brand new, exciting things. Um, so Adobe Sensei is the sort of umbrella term for Adobe's like machine learning um, and machine intelligence group and, and set of products. And we've been building um, AI-based tools for years and years and years. Like everybody in this room who's using Adobe products has used artificial intelligence, whether they know it or not. It's deeply ingrained into everything we do, including like look at your phone. How do you think the feeds from your favorite social networks show up. Those are, it's all like variations on artificial intelligence. And so like, this is all, oh, this is, I knew this was gonna happen. So here's where we're gonna have fun. I'm going to quit Keynote in the middle of my presentation. I'm going to relaunch Keynote because sometimes when you play a Keynote for 40 minutes, it decides it no longer wants to play videos because it's sleepy. There, if anyone works at Apple, I just found a bug for you. Um, so we've been, we've been really experimenting with these new ideas of like how artificial intelligence come into our products. Big, big, big caveat. These are all like very um, experimental ideas. These may or may not come into products. Disclaimer, disclaimer. But there's some exciting things we can do about you know, changing um, time of day, changing backgrounds, using generative AI is ingredients inside of our products. Um, this one is like a pretty amazing one where you can actually change like lighting using artificial intelligence. And this is about like not about creating something net new. It's about taking something you've already made and making it better in ways that would take you just enormous amounts of time. And so these are the kinds of things um, we're exploring. Um, but beyond editing, one of the things that we've been exploring is this idea of um, generative like text effects. So here I've got a font on the screen, I'm typing in a prompt, and I'm starting to get like variations on um, these different um, text effects uh, applying to this font. Um, I can change the strength, I've got like a ton of controls around how this looks. And so what this is doing is it's taking generative technology and it's mapping it to like the basic font metrics and is giving you like tons of, of different options. And you can see here, like based on what I type, the color of the font I select, the type of font I select, I can get like incredibly different variations. And so, you know, when we think about generative technology at Adobe, I think we're really thinking about um, acceleration of creative workflows. We're thinking about 
things that would be hard, if not impossible, to do um, in, in other ways, and really making sure that we're like building it into people's workflows in a way that like is is interesting and, and meaningful to them. Um, as part of that, I think there is um, a real need for, and, and I joke that content authenticity, which is an initiative Adobe started a few years ago, it's open source, there are a ton of amazing companies that are part of it, is like nutritional information for content. Right, like if you see something on the web, you should know who made it and how it was made. Right, and, and that's not a moral judgment, that's not, it has nothing to do with truth, it's about like knowing what's in the media you're consuming and then be able to make like intelligent decisions based on that. And so um, we have a plugin for Photoshop where you can um, tag your images with metadata on how it was created. Um, there is a website where you can actually validate that the credentials um, map to um, the credentials map to the, the creator and really trying to make sure that people are able to know like how were things manipulated that they're seeing manipulation isn't inherently bad like some of probably a lot of our favorite movies have amazing special effects in them but that is a manipulation but you should but you know that going into it that's very different than seeing a photo on instagram or or a video on facebook um and we just believe people should have they should be informed um and so from there you know that, that a lot of that was about product but I think you know my most important job these days is running um, a pretty large design team. I think Adobe Design around the world is upwards of 600 people, um, and you know I see my job as helping my team do the best work possible. Like that's just like that's what I'm doing at Adobe. Um, this was in 2018 before everything went bananas, and then we never saw each other again. But like these are all the wonderful people that I work with. Um, we're really based all over the world, um, like centers of gravity in tons of different countries. So I've got somebody in just about every time zone. And then um, we make a lot of products at Adobe. This isn't all my team, but um, if you go back and think about what we were just talking about with mobile and web and desktop and all the different surfaces, like it's a massive, massive uh, portfolio of products. Again, we think like, from a digital connected ecosystem, like I don't know that there's any other team in the world that makes more connected products than the teams at Adobe do. Um, and I think you really have to treat your team as a product, and I don't mean that in a negative way. What I mean is you need to build it out, you need to be thoughtful about what you're building and why, you need to iterate on it, you need to change things, you need to test, you need to grow, you need to really experiment with the organization you're part of. And some of that starts with like the basic organization. And so these are sort of like the core buckets of the design team at Adobe. Um, we have experience design, which is the thing everybody probably like thinks of. We've got a brand team. Um, we've got a prototyping team. And so prototyping in Adobe is um, very different than prototyping at other companies. If you imagine wanting to prototype a new pen tool in Illustrator, there's no prototyping tool on the planet that can approximate the pen tool in Illustrator if you want to change it. The only way to prototype that is to have an engineer actually build a new pen tool using native code, test it, break it. And so we've got a team in Adobe Design that's doing that. They're all like, I, I joke, they're like reformed product engineers who decided they wanted to be on the design team, but they help us build and test these things. 
Um, we've got an emerging design team that is really focused on machine intelligence, what comes next, um, a product equity team, which I'm realizing I have one out of date slide, um, that's really thinking about how we build products for the widest breadth of like humans in the world. Um, Adobe's mission is creativity for all. And so there's a lot of work that goes into making sure that our tools can be used by anyone in the world. Um, uh, I love this quote. Um, I think it's really important to think about culture when you're building a team. I think culture will happen to you if you don't create it yourself. Um, and the one thing I really love is like Adobe's values, I think, are like very clear, very actionable. Like I can look at these and go like, oh, I know how this relates to what I do every day. Create the future, own the outcome, raise the bar, and be genuine. Um, and we really think about the things that we do at this company like through the lens of these values. And this is a fun thing to be like a small part of because I think this really drives a lot of behavior and, and mission-driven companies. Um, the Adobe Design team um, has a website. So I think another part of being a big design organization is like sharing what we know. Um, and so if you've never checked it out, I would recommend we even have a couple of jobs open. I think we're one of the few places. Um, but uh, it's uh, adobe.design is the website. But um, kidding aside about the jobs, like there's like great resources there. We talk in depth about how we do things, why we do things the way they are. I, I hope that there's lessons that people could take away from this. There's also fun things like people talking about, you know, their side hustles and things they do outside of Adobe because I think at a company like Adobe, it hopefully isn't surprising. You get a lot of people who love art and music and creativity and everything else, like they end up there for a reason. And so we've got a lot of like pretty fascinating people. Um, I end up talking a lot about teams and healthy teams. Like this talk is a little bit of a, an aside for me. I spend most of my time when I'm doing speaking talking about like how to run teams that don't grind people up. And I think like the, T, the TLDR of my talk is basically this, like it's not okay to treat people like shit just because you pay them. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, South by Southwest, you should have me come do that talk next year because you just heard all that clapping. Um, but, but I think it's something important that we don't talk about as an industry enough. We don't talk about like how we treat each other, how we have like long lasting careers. It's always about the new tool, the new design system, the new X, the new Y, and it's never about like hopefully we're all doing this 20 years from now, like what needs to be true for that to happen. Like it just doesn't get talked about enough in my opinion. And so all this seems like very linear and very great. But with any career, there are like weird turns that people go down. And so last year I had, in the last year I've had two like fairly significant like turns in bad directions. And so, and, and the first one, I had two heart surgeries last year. I found out I had a like hereditary heart condition that luckily was caught in a scan. I had have surgeries, everything is fine, I'm great. But um, you know, during the middle of all this, we're launching products I'm running a 600 person team, we're doing all these different things and I'm like taking time off to have like heart surgeries and kind of not telling people about it. Um, and then on the right hand side, and I love this photo because this is not staged, like how you heal is, is here. We had a, 
about a month or two ago, we had a, a giant tree fall on our bedroom while we were sleeping. And um, when you hear the word tree, I can tell what part of the country you're from because tree in California means something different than a tree in other places. Trees in California are 80 foot tall, multi-ton things. They weigh as much as a semi and it like landed on us while we were sleeping. I, I woke up with a, a branch laying across my partner and I in the bed. And it's just a good reminder that like weird things happen um, all the time. And how I sort of, I think the way I sort of adapt to these things is really through humor. And I think where I really developed that was in sort of my last moment um, where, yeah, my last name is Snowden, if you didn't notice that. Um, and people got confused. Um, so this is on the cover of The Guardian. Um, I, had I had Congress people saying my name on the floor of Congress, which I think means, um, you know, I'm sort of in like the permanent records for the government now, which is fun. Um, but like people like couldn't figure it out. And because, um, Edward at the time didn't have any social media presence. People found me. <laughs> yeah. So I was getting hundreds of messages a day, DMs, like emails, phone calls. I got death threats. It was just, it was like this wild time. But the way I sort of like found my way out of it was to kind of like make fun of these people. And the funny thing is when um, you explain to people that they had the wrong person, nine times out of 10, they felt horrible. And I'm like, did you not think there were human beings on the other end of the internet? Did you not like, it, it was just, it was sort of amazing how quickly they would turn things around. Um, but this was a time where I, you know, sort of learned really about rolling with things. Like I think, you know, while the rest of my career, I think um, there were twists and turns I didn't talk about. This was, this was a very, very strange time. I would get stopped at airports. I would get, you know, again, I was getting death threats on my personal phone number. I don't know how that information got out. It's since Edward Snowden getting on Twitter is like the best thing that ever happened to me because they actually knew like where to go. Um, but the interesting thing about this is I ended up, um, I wish I had a better screen of this, but I ended up on The Daily Show talking about mistaken identity. Um, and so, yeah, I met a guy at Salesforce whose name was Mike Pence. Um, I met a guy whose name was Jerry Sandusky. Um, I met another Sarah Sanders, and obviously Sarah now Huckabee Sanders was the press secretary at the time. And so it was kind of like this wild, amazing experience that came out of something that was like, really took over my life for a very long period of time. Um, and so this is a, another screenshot from the, the Daily Show. Um, and even my mom was like, you do kind of look like him. I was like, mom, like not like it just similar enough, I guess. Um, but it was like this kind of fun and, and wild um, experience that I think I learned. I really learned a lot from. And so um, bringing it all the way back around the last year that the 99U conference was on, I showed up to pick up my badge, and obviously, like all my friends still work there. And this was my badge. It said <laughs> Edward Snowden. And I love that it says 99U intern. <laughs> this was, you know, it was just all kind of bringing it all the way back around. Um, 
And so, you know, there's a lot of things that I you know, hope sort of you all take away from this. I think, um, you know, I try to like look at everything in a very lighthearted way. I try to be a very optimistic person. And I, I think I've, I've learned a lot. I know that like not all advice is transferable. I know that I have a lot of inherent advantages that other people don't have, but I'm hoping that as you look at these things, there's something you can take away. There's something you can apply sort of to yourself as you go. And um, thanks everybody. And I'm open to doing, I think we have a couple of minutes. I'm sure people are running to other things, but if you have questions, I would do my best to answer them. And if not, then I hope you get to your next session. I don't know if that mic is on. Hello, testing. Hi. Uh, first hey. Great talk. Oh. <laughs> great talk. I uh, really appreciated hearing more about your story and how you got to where you are. I'm curious about uh, what recommendations for reading you might have. Is there like any particular books that you're like, oh, this is like a very good book that uh, someone who's getting into design should read to develop a framework to think about their career? Yeah, I think the, the, the best book that I've read recently is... Um, Julie Zhao from Facebook. Oh God, it's like something, it has the word manager in it. I wish I could, who, who said, somebody's, Making of a Manager. I feel like that's a really great book. I feel like she breaks down like the different parts of a design career, what it's like to be an IC and a manager and running a big team and explains it in like a very easy to understand way but without talking down to you and you know, I sort of read it recently after having done a lot of these things. I was like, this is a really good articulation of like what a career might look like. And so I think that would be like my number one recommendation for people. Thanks. Yep. Hi there. Thank you so much for this talk. I, I heard you mention a couple of times like, man, I should have taken another business class or something. <laughs> and I'm curious, as you rose to the ranks, did you ever have moments where you were like, oh, shit, I really should have taken that extra business class, maybe felt imposter syndrome, or what you, if you did, what you did to close those gaps? I still feel imposter syndrome today. Like, it doesn't go away. Like, before this talk started, I'm like, no one's going to show up. Right? Like, 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 and so I don't want people to think that that's something that, like, disappears, even if you're, like, appear to be successful in getting the things you want. Like, it doesn't change. You just kind of, like, get over it. I'm like, well, if only five people show up. They'll sit in the front row. I'll sit down there. We'll, we'll chat. Like, I'm like, they'll, hopefully they'll get something out of it, and that's what matters. And so, you know, you just sort of learn to deal with those things. Um, Wait, ask your question again. I'm sorry. <laughs> Just, I guess you kind of answered it. What you did to close those gaps. Did you take classes? Yeah. Did you just become a learner through osmosis? So I was a lot of osmosis. A lot of, you know, during times where um, I think the good thing about being in the music industry, which is an inherently like, creative place that values design, if I said I wanted to be involved in, like, the Spotify deal they were doing, they wouldn't say like, you're a designer, like why would you do that? I'd be like, okay, sure. Like you have a valid opinion on these things. And I think 
there was a lot of that in the music industry, which was like the best thing I got out of it is like, I was, I never felt like I was treated different than other people because I was a designer. And so I got to like watch a lot of people do stuff. I got to learn, I got to, um, when I told them I wanted to have my entire class take, or my entire group of designers take analytics classes, they were like, yeah, sure, why not? Like they, no one thought that was a strange thing. And so like, I feel like design was not put in a box there. And if you can find a place like that, even if it's not, is like appearingly like glamorous work, like be at that place for a while, you'll learn so much. Like, I think that was like one of the secrets is like, they just let me do things that they probably shouldn't have, but they're like, you're smart, you'll figure it out. Hey, great talk. Um, when you felt like it was time to make a change, how did you know whether it was what you were doing or where you were doing it? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> Um, so the question was, when you um, are making a change, how do you know if it's what you're doing or where you are? Um, I, I guess for me, I never doubted that I wanted to be a designer. Like once I found it, it was like very clear to me that that's what I wanted. And I talk to a lot of people about this who work at startups who like have frankly sometimes very terrible experiences. and. Like I try to remember them to look at the parts that they like because they can. There are places out there where you will only get those parts, right? And no place is no place is perfect, but I think at its core, if you're a designer and you're enjoying like doing freelance projects or the work on your own, like there are signs there that like you're doing the right thing, and it might be the wrong place. And I think it's hard to know when to leave a place, and there's a lot to think about. Like there were many times in my career where. I quit a job and I was like, am I going to be able to pay rent? Like what's gonna happen? Am I gonna have to like move back to Illinois? Which at the time I was like, oh my God, I can't do that. I love Illinois, but not, I didn't wanna move home. And so it, it was just, um, I stuck with things longer, but I also feel like I still have a really trusted group of people that I ask questions of, I ask feedback, they know me really well, and I listen to their advice and it's, it's hard, I think it's like a recipe, it's like hard to know what the right or the wrong ingredients are. But I think if you can start to separate them out and think about like, what do you like doing and what do you think about doing when you're not at work? And for me, it was design and that was not just to make ends meet, that was because I loved it and I was like, I will find a place where this is valued and like I feel really lucky that I have. Thank you. Yeah. Hi. So you showed a little bit of stuff that looked like it was kind of in beta as far as the generative AI. What are the most cool features that are in published versions of Adobe products that use generative AI and then even yeah. outside of Adobe for those of us kind of dipping our toe into that? Yeah, I, I think within Adobe, um, I mean, I'll, maybe I'll cross the word generative off for a second and just say AI. Right, we have AI in our tools that are doing better rotoscoping and After Effects. There's AI in our tools that are doing like resizing and refitting of videos. So when you're like, oh gosh, I shot this at this aspect ratio, but it's different for this social network. Like that's something you know in our tools today. Um, you know, there, there's uh, content where Phil, I believe, uses AI at some level. Um, all the the generative stuff we're looking at is 
sort of future and, and speculative and who knows like what we end up doing there. But um, I forget the last count, but there, I think there's over like a hundred different AI-based features in different Adobe products. It's something Adobe's been doing for a long time, yeah. Hi, Chris from Chicago. Just wondering with these new advancements with AI and like, you know, software platforms like Canva make it easier for regular folks who have no design experience creating, you know, pretty much anything nowadays. Is there like type of a fear of, you know, designers losing work over these new technologies and platforms that maybe people not learning the technical aspects of things? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's always that fear and there's always change. It's hard to like quantify that fear. I think what I think is happening more than that is people who would have never hired a designer and would have never done anything can do something they couldn't have done before. Like when I see somebody, um, you know, we have a product at Adobe called Adobe Express, which is a design tool for that anyone can use. And when I see my sister making like a birthday card for her kids, I was like, she was not gonna hire a designer to do that. She just would have done it in Word. And so, you know, I think it's really about empowering people who wouldn't have done that. I think, like, how that all plays out is gonna be a big question. I think with, with generative AI in, in specific, there's a lot of questions about, like, who owns it? Can you copyright it? Can you use this stuff for commercial use? And so I think the places that are hiring designers, like big companies, were often like concerned about things like copyright. Um, at least right now, we're a little bit arm's length with this stuff. I think it's really fun. I've lost hours playing with, you know, the dollies and the mid journeys of the world. They're a blast. But like, there's a lot of real questions that nobody knows the answer to, including the U.S. government and other governments, about like who owns the stuff that comes out of that and how much human intervention is needed for you to have ownership over that and can a company copyright that stuff and so if, if the answer to some of those things is like no then the challenge becomes like okay nike uses generative ai i can just use that image because they don't own it are they going to do that probably not so i i i think like in the long term this stuff is going to be massively disruptive but there have been like so many times in human history and even in creativity where these massively disruptive things have really like expanded the number of people making creative things. Um, so maybe that's like the longest possible way of saying I don't know. Um, but, but, you know, I think there is something really wonderful about more people in the world being able to make beautiful things inherently. Like I think, like I don't think we should gatekeep that. I think it's really valuable and i think like what form that takes like is changing on a literal daily basis like i'm sure some crazy thing got announced this morning that i don't even know exists yet so um, i think we'll all sort of take that journey together yeah thank you very much yeah. Okay. Hi. Um, first of all, I want to say that I really enjoyed your talk. Um, I'm actually going to be, uh, I'm going to graduate in May and I have not had a linear path when it comes to design or art or illustration. And it feels really nice seeing someone who also did not have a linear path in that be able to like 
be now like a vice like vice president vice of like yeah. the, <laughs> of, the yeah, of the design team so i feel like that really inspired me and everything but one question i do have is that how do you i guess um leverage or um like because your job is in design how do you how how are you also able to enjoy design and art and creativity on your own time and be able to make art that is for you and not just for your job too, if that makes sense. That's like the best, hardest question. <laughs> um, you know, I think there were times in my career where I was working like crazy hours and sleeping at the office and doing those things. And I'm lucky enough to be in a place where um, I don't do those things and I probably didn't need to do them then. I was just... A lot of that was out of fear of like what would happen if I if I didn't do this. Um, I think now I'm really protective of my time, and um, you know I try to have a pretty rigorous schedule now. Like at the in the company I'm at, we'll have launches, we'll have our conference, we'll have other things that'll get messed up temporarily. But I try to get back to it. And one of my coworkers um, made this joke one time. He's like, "You're really good at taking vacation." And I think what he meant was not like you take a lot of vacation. It's like when you take time off, you like do it right. And I literally, um, I have two phones. I have a work phone and a personal phone. And when I'm not working, my work phone is in a different room that I'm in. And like that was the single best decision I've ever made for like work-life balance and creativity. And it feels like an idiot walking around with two phones. But... Like, I can put it away, and I can not get those pings, and I can actually disconnect. And so I don't know if it's that for you, but I think you have to create those, like, habits and rituals that, like, break you out of that grind. Because otherwise, especially if you're working from home, you know, like, oh, shit, it's 930 at night, and I, like, didn't do anything that I wanted to do. And so I think it's about, like, creating, like, rules and rituals and creating time for yourself. And, you know, working at a place like Anderson Ranch where I met famous artists, I remember... The thing that I learned even back in my 20s is like every artist I know who's making work on a regular basis treats it like a second job. They have a schedule. They don't break the schedule. Like, oh, I have to, I have to work tonight. You want to go to a movie? Like, no, I have to work. And your friends won't understand that your art is a job to you. But you have to treat it like that. You have to treat it like if someone was paying you for it or it was your regular job, you wouldn't just skip it on a regular day, maybe sometimes. But you wouldn't, like, most of the time you wouldn't skip it. Like, you have to, like, treat creating art or music or whatever it is you love doing like a second job and put those same constraints on it. And, again, having met a lot of really successful artists, they all say the same thing. They're like, your art is a job. You have to treat it like that. You have to make time for it. And if you treat it like a hobby, like, that's what it will be. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for your presentation today, and I love seeing all the advancements and kind of like the timeline of like Adobe and all your guys' products and how they're growing and expanding. And I'm not sure if you can touch on this aspect, but um, with Adobe's acquisition of Figma, um, could we expect to see any characteristics of Figma starting to like come over into Adobe with like collaboration and things like that? So I can't talk about that. 
because um, I actually don't know much more than you do, probably. Um, so Adobe has not yet acquired Figma. It's in the process of it. So Adobe and Figma are still two completely separate companies. So the relationship we have with them is exactly the same as it was a year, whenever we just, when we announced the acquisition. So nothing has changed and like nothing will change until after that's done. And with large acquisitions, that just takes, that takes time. So right now it's the same way it was a year ago, two years ago. Cool, awesome, thank you. Yeah, no problem. What's up? Hey. All right. Well, thank you so much for being vulnerable and sharing your story with us today. One thing that I actually want to kind of tackle on, um, learning a little bit more about you is, you spoke about not wanting to have imposter syndrome. So for me is, how do you build that psychological safety for a team of future leaders that you're building amongst your own team? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the, the thing that I always try to do, and this was something I practiced a lot, during the pandemic was there was sort of this old adage like, you know, bosses speak last or I'm butchering it, but something like that. I think when you're talking about something vulnerable, it's actually more important for you to speak first. And so during COVID, when I would have my staff meetings, I would start out by being like, I'm really worried about this person in my life. I'm, I'm not feeling well. Oh my God, I hope I didn't get this thing. Um, like I'm struggling being at home. And I think by like starting the conversation by being vulnerable and opening up you give like everybody else license to do the same thing and you know you sort of as a leader you set that tone and you'll start to see people following that and i think that's something leaders like often underestimate how much influence they have over the people around them and the things you say get listened to and they matter and people Sometimes like mimic them. I don't mean that in a bad way, but they're like, oh, he's he or she is doing this. Like, I feel like I can do that too. And so I think it's really about leading by example is sort of the, the first thing. And I also think, you know, for me at least, it comes pretty naturally. I kind of don't know how else to be. And I think that's a part of it. And like, I think as much as you don't want the people on your team being something they're not, you shouldn't try to be something you're not. And so if there's, you know, maybe it's less about you or maybe about giving floor to someone else who can like speak, the, speak their truth in a way that like is, is valuable and they feel comfortable doing. So I think it's about whether it's you or somebody close to you, like modeling that behavior and just showing everybody it's okay. And sometimes it's about like actually saying the words, like if you're not okay, that's fine. Or I think you're struggling with this. Let's talk about it. And like, putting that out there, right? And like cutting through the tension of people like not wanting to, to not show up in like a perfect way for you. And so I think it's about like leading by example and like opening those doors for those conversations. So. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Hi. Um, Hi. Thank you. Um, so my kind of question was, I, kn I know that you mentioned that you like didn't want to have to go back home. I graduated in 2020. So, like, everything was kind of shut down, and I was kind of, like, wondering, like, what advice you would give to people that were, like, forced to go home and, like, have to put a pause on, like, everything that they were doing. Like, how do you get back into it without having to be in that, like, awkward position where everyone's like, well, why did you stop during the pandemic? Because, like, not everyone had the privilege of being able to stay where they were. Yeah. So, I think, I think there's a couple of things there. I think I'm... 
gonna say some opinions here, but like I had, do not have the same experience you had. So like some no, of that. No, I mean like yeah. like if you had like kind of like what would you like tell people that like had like yeah. would you think that if you had to have gone home, how would do you think you would have gotten past it? Well, I, I think there's a few things. I think you know for the individual, I would say. Like in any experience and even the worst experiences that I've had in my career, like I really try to find like what's the one thing that I'm gonna learn from this that will like help me in the future. Yeah. And I think really focusing on that, I think there must be something. And so if you're at home or you're not working, it's like, are you building out your portfolio? Or are you spending eight hours a day looking for a job? When I when I first moved to New York, I moved there without a job and I moved with exactly enough money to stay for one month. And I was like, if I don't get a job at the end of this month, I'm, I have to leave. Yeah. And I spent like 10 hours a day either working on my portfolio or just calling and emailing and messaging people. And like I treated that like a full-time job. And so I think that would be maybe my recommendation for you. I think as you're applying to companies, I really hope that other leaders understand the situation that people like you were in. And if they don't, and this is easy for me to say, but like, that's probably not the kind of company you want to be at. Like, and, and again, like we all have to take jobs that we don't want sometimes because of lots of different reasons. And I've had to do it in my past, but like, I think how somebody handles that, like, and how a hiring manager sees that says a lot about the, like what that company believes in. And so I think that's also something for you to keep an eye out for, but I would say, if you have that time, like look at that time as a gift and figure out like, what can I learn? What can I do? What classes can I take? Can I do spec projects to build out my portfolio? Can I take on some small freelance clients? Like use it to like build that muscle. And then hopefully when things get a little bit better, um, you've got, you're like an even stronger place to get, you know, your next, your next gig. Yeah, cool. That was actually like the perfect answer. Thank you. Thank you. Are we gonna get kicked out? Yeah, <laughs> that's a yes. Um, if the, there are two more questions, if you want to come and talk to me, you can do that. I think. Yeah, we, we, I gotta go. Okay. But come up here. Okay. <laughs> Thank you.